If you've looked at the bulletin, if you've been paying attention to the uh, emails and such, uh, you'll recognize that we come to a pretty familiar text today, John 3.16. Our text really is uh, chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. And so let me read, starting back at verse uh, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3.16 is very well known in a very powerful passage. As as we come to this text, I'm reminded of the story of how it affected D.L. Moody. You've heard of him. I've mentioned him at times, an evangelist in the 1800s. Um, We might be familiar with Moody Bible Institute, Moody Memorial Church, uh, the Moody Bible Commentary, Moody Radio. Um, You can go on and on. That all came from Dwight Lehman Moody. And he was an evangelist uh, who was used mightily of the Lord here and abroad. Well, on one occasion, he was over in England preaching, and uh, he met an evangelist over there and said, oh, and that fellow told him, well, I'm hoping to go to the States uh, someday and preach. And well, Moody said, well, if ever you're in Chicago area, let me know and you can preach for me. Sometimes you say things and really expect to fulfill them. Maybe invite someone, oh, if you're ever in the area, come by and you can stay with me. Oh, they're in the area. <laughs> uh, so anyway, one day he got notice from uh, his guest, his friend, that Mr. Henry Morehouse was his name, that um, I'm, I'm going to be in Chicago. Uh, look forward to seeing you. And, and all of a sudden, Moody thought, well, I've never even heard this guy preach. But he, he had a, some engagements coming up where he was going to travel, and so he told the, the leadership of his church, well, let him preach one time and uh, see how it goes. And with that, uh, Moody left, and when he came back, uh, he returned home, and, um, and, and, and he asked his wife, so, so how'd he do? Now, nowadays, you know, he could have watched it online, you know, but he had, so how'd he do it? She said, well, I think he's a better preacher than you are, <laughs> which is exactly what husbands love to hear from their wife as they're preaching. <laughs> and uh, he said, why? Well, well he's, he's been preaching on John 3.16 oh, the whole time. He's preached uh, uh, several, the, the, he said so well the first time, the men let him keep preaching. And he keeps coming back to just preaching John 3.16 about how God loves sinners. And Moody thought, oh, this is amazing. I've got to hear him. And he went and heard him preach. And it changed his life. He was so struck by the message, took to heart the message of John 3.16 in a new and powerful way of God's love for the world. And it impacted his preaching for the rest of his life. John 3.16. Again, everybody knows it. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, wouldn't you say that's probably most people, in the, you could go down in our country, 
just go down the street and stop someone. Do you know about John 3.16? And they can get somewhere in there. God so loved the world and maybe they start mumbling. But it's truly one of the greatest known passages. You know, if you think about it, John 3.16, Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. Okay, good. That's another verse. Um, then they might know Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Good. Um, of course, probably the best known, most beloved verse in America uh, is Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. <laughs> but truly, isn't it? I mean, John 3.16, everybody knows that one. Um, the story is told a man had met someone, a friend of his, a Russian soldier at the time, who was uh, Nikolay Alexandrenko. He was a paratrooper for the Russians in World War II. And uh, he was an atheist. He was shot down. Um, and before he ever hit the ground, uh, he'd been torn up by machine gun fire. And he felt he was going to die. He saw his friends die. As I said, he was an atheist. He'd been taught atheism from childhood. He was dedicated to the philosophy of Karl Marx and communism and, and, and to Stalin. But back in the barracks, and as he was in the freezing cold, he was trying to light a fire. Found a piece of paper. Uh, For God so loved the world, it set on it. And he threw it into the try. He used it to try and start the fire. It wouldn't burn. And it wouldn't burn. So he looked at it and what was found it to be a gospel tract. For God so loved the world. And as he read it, he began to weep. So there in the cold barracks, with all his background as an atheist and fighting for Stalin, he came to the place where he gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted him as Savior. Went on to uh, go to seminary and, and became a, a professor. In recent days, uh, and, and did you know, some of you may not be, may, may be aware, may not be aware that uh, today is one of those world-changing events. It's the Super Bowl. <laughs> A great spectacle of American religion. Well, if, if that's one of those times when, again, John 3.16 became famous. You know, people used to go and raise signs and all this kind of stuff, but I think perhaps the most famous time was when Tim Tebow you know, painted it underneath his, his eyes. And he reported, he did this, they, they found out that during the Super Bowl of 2009, when he had that John 3.16 painted under his eyes, 94 million people Googled John 3.16. So I think the world came to faith at that time, and we've been in great revival and living in a gloriously... Uh, but it is amazing, isn't it? Uh, and, and so it's, a, it's, it's the most familiar of passages. But, it's, but one of the things we need to remember in this familiar text is, first of all, what does it really say? And it's so important whenever you read a text, find out the context. And so we, I was hoping to get to it last time, but I spent so much time developing verses 14 and 15, we stopped there. Um, but let's go back and look at those because they really laid the context. Remember, remember the overall context uh, John, of John 3. It, Jesus had been in Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, but was also there teaching and doing uh, miracles, signs, 
and they're called, meaning they're miracles that had a message. Well, Nicodemus finally came to Jesus and said, we know you have to be a teacher from God because no one else could do these miracles. And so, you know, talk of being a prophet. They said that about John the Baptist. And, he, and John didn't even do miracles. And so then they thought, well, is he the Messiah? So Nicodemus came to visit, had that encounter. And, of course, those glorious words were said to him, you know, you must be born again. He talked, and, and, of course, Nicodemus, it went right over his head. What are you talking about, born again? How is it even physically possible? I'm talking about spiritual birth. Well, then the Lord went on to say in verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, reminding him of what he already knew from the history of Israel back in Numbers, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then John 3.16 comes in. Um, and so he's in the context of predicting to Nicodemus, Son of Man, Nicodemus knows that's a messianic label, title. The son of man is to be lifted up like the serpent on a pole, crucifixion. And then he comes into this. Now, I, I, I need to make one other comment. Just curious, one of these Bible surveys I'm going to do. How many of you are looking at a red letter edition? Okay. I won't ask now, but and where in my red letter, New King James, New uh, New King James, red letter edition. It's all red, all the way through to verse uh, 21. I don't know what your version's like. I should tell you, when John wrote, he did not have a black ink pot and a red ink pot. That would have been so helpful. Well, of course, but then the scribes for years who followed him, all the manuscripts, they're all in black ink. Um. And furthermore, Greek is, is, especially as it was written in, in originally in John's time, it was all capitals, no punctuation, and in fact, no, no spaces between words. You can figure out grammatically where the word divisions are. But there's no punctuation, no comma, no period, no exclamation point, no quotation marks. So when is it that Jesus stops talking and John is talking? can't be dogmatic on this and obviously your if your red letter is like mine the new king james editors think jesus taught was talking all the way through verse 21 um, some problems with that is if if john if, if jesus is talking up to now it's been dialogue comment question comment question that just kind of stops here now it's just exposition just talking um, up to now jesus has a couple of times mentioned the son of man, he no longer uses that expression. Um, also, there is a shift over to more of a past tense vocabulary. Can't be dogmatic. And if we get to heaven and I find out I'm wrong, you can come and talk to me and I'll say, yeah, okay, I was wrong. But I would say the, quote, the red letters stop in verse 15. Verse 16 starts the black. And so... Um, so what I would understand is this is now John explaining and developing what Jesus has been saying. For God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life or eternal life as, as it was translated just a verse or two before. 
the four connects the context. So again, we could, and, and I'm going to try not to, 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 to slow down too much on all the pieces, but you, know, you can, as Mr. Moore did in, in Moody's church, you could go on for days and days on this. And some of you are thinking, you know that's true with me. <laughs> well, I'll try to be gentle here, but the, first of all, the word for connects it to the previous. He's just talked about the crucifixion predicted by the referring to the number story of the putting up of the serpent on the pole. And saying, in that context, you know, what he said was that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For, now John explaining, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, Notice it says God so loved the world. We often read that, and I think a lot of times as I was looking through, a lot of people will take that as he, he loved so much he loved the world. And it's a possibility this word could mean that. But actually, the most common way it's translated, and it's a very common um, particle of speech in the Greek, it's more commonly thus or thusly. In other words, God loved the world in this way. So he's he's now going to say, and so he says, God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son. Now, of course, that's, that is an amazing way. And so we can see with great, great love. But he loved the world by giving his son in this way. Or he loved the world in this way. He gave his son, his only begotten son. And we could, again, we could spend time going back and think uh, there's another biblical parable that, par- parallel that so many think of uh, when Abraham offered Isaac. Remember, God said, I want you to go to Mount Moriah and offer your son. And Abraham went. And uh, said, Isaac, let's go. And it's amazing to me, he, he made, when he went up on the mountain, he actually made Isaac carry the wood. But Isaac was going along. And back then, you know, they didn't have lighters in their pocket or matches, so they carried the fire with them. And he had said, Father, we've got the fire, we've got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? God will provide, son. But Abraham went up in faith, ready to offer his son. Hebrews tell us he expected God was going to just have to resurrect him. Because Abraham so believed the promise of God, God said, in this one, I will give you a nation of descendants. And so he said, well, if if Isaac's going to be the father of descendants, and he hasn't any children yet, okay, God's just going to have to bring it back to life. All right, that's up to you, Lord. Now, it wasn't that easy, though, was it? He trusted the Lord. And, and we could imagine how that must have been. His shoulders must have been so hunched, his tears. And, and he had trouble breathing, and it wasn't just the hill. But it was, it was, it was his faith and love that was willing to give. And, and God had even said to him, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, God took him right up to the edge and then stopped, don't, and offered a a substitute. But when it came time to offer his son, God did not say stop. He gave his son to die in our place. This is how, in this way, God thusly loves 
loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his son to die in our place. This would be John's equivalent to Romans 5.18. Excuse me, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But as a demonstration of the love of God. So as we look at this passage, there is the stunning display of the love of God. And we're reminded, you know, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. And, um, and this is a great time to buy chocolate. But it's a good time to think, really, what is love? And so often in our culture, love is thought in terms of being a feeling, But really, love is an intention to start with. Love is intending and seeking the best for the person that's loved. And so love always goes along with an attitude and with action. And so God loved enough to give his son. And so that reminds us, and it's been said often, that love can be um, translated or can be spelled with simply four letters, G-I-V-E. Love is an action, and it gives to the other. Well, John says further, God so loved the world. Now, that would have been a shocking thought to Nicodemus. To the Jewish people, God loved the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. God loves us and no one else. The Gentiles, he hates. That's what they would have gladly said. And so when he's saying God loves the world, that's a stunning thought. It would be probably hard for John to speak. Uh, when I was in Israel living there, one of my Jewish friends, uh, one time, you know, in, the word for Gentile in, in Hebrew is goy, uh, which goyim means nations. So someone who's from one of the other nations, not Israel, not but Abraham's descendants. And I, so I was talking with one of my Jewish friends, and I said you know, something about, I'm a goy. And he said, Drake, please don't say that. And I said, why not? I am a goy. He said, stop that. You know? just, it, it, that was such a term of derision. He hated the thought that I would use it like, of, of myself because he liked me. Don't call yourself a goy, even if it is true. Kind of reminds me, years ago, as the church was starting, we had a young family and a little guy. Um, I, I think Barb referred to herself as a Yankee. And, and this guy, the little guy got so upset. Don't say that! <laughs> but it's true, stop it! And that's when I realized we probably needed to end the subscription to Yankee magazine that we'd been receiving. <laughs> but that's the attitude I like you. you. Don't call yourself a goy, even if you are. Don't call yourself a Gentile. Because God doesn't love the Gentiles. And that was even a problem in the early church, which was all Jewish. If you go to Acts 15, the question was, what must a Gentile do to be saved? And some were arguing they need to become Jews so God can love them, in a sense. And, and of course, what the apostles said is, Wrong. That's not what God told us. God so loved the world, Jew, Gentile alike. And so Jews are saved the same way Gentiles are saved, by grace, through faith, 
not through obedience to the law. But that was something they had to wrestle with. And so when he says God so loved the world, that's that's stunning. That's stunning. But God so loved the world that he gave his son. Now, there's something else to notice in this verse. God so loved, in this manner he loved, that he gave. And if you're a good grammarian, you will notice those are past tense verbs. He loved. That he, and he gave. What, what do you mean gave? Well, that, could, that probably includes the incarnation. But it ultimately speaks of the cross, the giving of a son on the cross. And that's the context. Like the raising up on the tree, up on the pole of the snake, God gave his son. And that's why I say John is writing this because he's after the cross. But I remember, this takes me all the way back to my first course in Greek, New Testament Greek. The professor made a comment that, that just stunned me, but is grammatically inaccurate, true, you go through the New Testament and you look up where it speaks of God's love and except maybe one or two instances, everywhere God's love is always spoken of in the past tense. I like to say God's love is a thing of the past. Why past tense? God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He showed his love. He demonstrated his love at the cross. It was an, it's an, an act in history that shows his love. Romans 8, 31 and 32. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also give, freely give us all things? God's love is a thing of the past. It was supremely, ultimately, finally demonstrated at the cross. That's really important. Because we often fall into the the trap of saying, of, of measuring God's love by how I feel or by my circumstances. We prayed earlier for the situation in Ukraine. War could break out in, in, at any moment. And if a terrible war should break out and it'd be a devastating time, I could very much understand believers uh, hunkering down and, and, and trying to get through, saying, why doesn't God love us? But that would be a mistake. Because God has shown and demonstrated his love in a way that can never be compared He gave his son to die in our place. God's love is a thing of the past. How do I know he loves me? He gave his son to die for me. It's not by the measure of my banking account. It's not by the comfort I feel. It's not by my health. He died on the cross for me. That's how I know God loves me. It's been said that we could, you know, someone was asked one time, how much does God love me? This much. The cross is how we know God loves us. And so that's why I like to say, notice in the, it's all in the past tense here. He loved us. So he gave his son. 
The outcome of the love is that everyone who responds to, uh, to him in faith has eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him. Now the believe is actually, a, it's a present tense, which it's an ongoing belief. Saving faith is a continuing faith. Whoever believes in him has everlasting life. Now I might take that again, that word in. In the Greek, it's a preposition that means into. It's the most common expression of, save, uh, of saving faith in the Bible to believe into Jesus. Well, what do you mean by that? When I trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, I am, develop, I am establishing a relationship with him. I'm believing into him. I'm entrusting myself into his hands and heart. So it's not just believing facts about him. It's believing into him. Saving faith accomplishes a union with Christ. And that's why I have eternal life. Then John 3.16, our national verse our, that's so well known, says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Right here, in John 3.16, it's clear that man has two potential destinies. Perish or eternal life, everlasting life. I really think everlasting life is probably a better translation. Eternal means no beginning, no end. Everlasting means once it begins, it will never quit. That's, that's, that's the true concept for um, God is eternal. You and I are everlasting. But our everlasting soul will either be with him in glory forever or we will be under the wrathful destruction of God. And now that doesn't mean destroyed and gone, but, but he, his relationship with us will be the ju destructive judgment forever. And so notice if we believe, we don't perish, but we have everlasting life. But, but the teaching here is clear. There are two destinies. And, and so often, the attitude today is, and, and you've heard it, maybe you've said it, but so often someone will say when someone dies, well, he's in a better place. If a believer, true. If, if that person hasn't trusted in Jesus Christ, the reality is, it's not a better place. That's a hard reality, but it is a reality just the same. And here it is in John 3.16. Well, verse 17 speaks of the fact that God sent his son to save. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, again, the Jewish expectation is the Messiah is going to come. And the, and the popular view of that meant Messiah is going to come. He's going to conquer those wicked Gentiles and establish his kingdom. So he's going to come and condemn the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles. And who gets into the kingdom of the Jews? Everyone. Remember I told you that... Um, Abraham, one, one view was that Abraham's going to be sitting by the gates of Hades and, and uh, 
any Jew that should approach, no, he would stop saying, no, you're one of mine. You go to paradise. The view was everybody gets to go. Kind of like so the popular view today is who gets to go to heaven? Everybody. Well, there's probably a half a dozen that don't. Hitler, Stalin, uh, Pol Pot. I'm running out. I don't even know if I can get to six. So, so it's, a, it's a big place, but there are not that many people there. That's not the scripture, is it? The only ones who are in glory are those who believe, is what this passage is saying. God did not send his son into the world to condemn, though, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus, again and again, talked about how God sent him into the world. That's only true of Jesus. We have our beginning here. He had his beginning there. And God sent him into the world. So he kept emphasizing you know, his, his, his unique incarnation. God took upon himself human flesh. God sent his son from heaven into the world. But he didn't come the first time to condemn. So here he's talking about when he came. He came to save. He came to offer salvation. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, the the view is the Messiah was going to come conquer. That's judgment. Establish his kingdom. But Jesus came to save the world, Jew and Gentile alike. And when he came this first time, his emphasis was on the saving part. See, that was a problem for the Jews, and actually they wrestled with it. Because they read their, their scriptures, and so often they would see the king coming and conquering. Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And oh, so many other passages. Here comes the king. But there were those other passages like the familiar one, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Um, Jesus came to suffer. They didn't understand that. Jesus uh, tried to introduce that to his disciples, and they pushed back. Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Remember when he first introduced the concept to Peter, <laughs> Peter, Peter was going to set the Lord straight. No, Lord. And again, we've said before, I'll say it again, those two words don't go together. No, Lord. And, and when you find, and, and frankly, we get into this all the time or in our own lives, we we try to set the Lord straight. No, that's, that's not what you have in mind for me, Lord. Well, Jesus had to teach them. Messiah was going to come and suffer. After he, so that was in Matthew was before he died. After he died, after the resurrection, Luke 24, 46. Then he said to them, thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day. So when he looks back and said, let me show you the, the, the teachings of the Messiah, he kept having to explain, he, can't, he has to suffer. When Peter was preaching in Jerusalem after the resurrection and after the Holy Spirit was given in Acts 3.18, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. And every time they would say that, Messiah, suffer, those words don't go together. Messiah, conquer. Messiah, reign. When Paul would go and speak in the the synagogues, 
Acts 17.3, he was explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to is the Christ. And, and if you talk to your Jewish friends and present to them Christ as the Messiah, the first thing they'll say is, but he died. He can't be the Messiah. To which the scriptural answer is, he died or he couldn't be the Messiah. Messiah had to die. And that's why I say Isaiah 53. I've shared before, one of my friends over there, hoping to be a rabbi in training, when I mentioned Isaiah, he said, oh yeah, we call him the Christian prophet. <laughs> Isaiah 53, 3-6, he is speaking of the Messiah. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Israel speaking of the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Messiah had to suffer. And so, text in verse 17, God did not send his his son into the world to condemn the world, but to say that the world through him might be saved. So in his first coming in the incarnation, he came to fulfill the suffering part. So I said, some rabbis actually came up and said there were two messiahs. Messiah, son of David, the conqueror, son of David, the king, Messiah, son of Joseph, the sufferer. That's interesting, because Jesus is both son of David and son of Joseph. But so they had that, that struggle, and so John makes it clear for us, John the apostle, John A, that Jesus didn't come to, to condemn, he came to save. Verse 18 He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so he's saying, and so the issue is, God's love is demonstrated. But notice notice it is God the Father we're talking about. We We always say, Jesus loves me, but it's God the Father's love that was directing the offering of the Son. And so he's talking about the, the importance so that we believe in him. We will not perish but have everlasting life. That's why God sent him into the world. And then John makes it clear, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who is not believed is condemned already. And so what John is laying out before us is we start out condemned because of our guilt in Adam. And then we add to our condemnation through, through our, our conduct. We, we, we are Adam's guilt, which he brought on the race. We, we, we have a sinful nature, and we act out that. We are, from the beginning, when in Psalm 51, David, when he was confessing his sin, he said, the reason I sinned is because I'm a sinner. He said, I was conceived in sin. I was a, a sinner from conception. 
There's only one exception. Maybe two. No, no, there's only, there's only one exception, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us, we're condemned. We're, we've come under the, we've been convicted already before the, before the court of law. Every one of us is a convict. Every one of us is a convict. Every one of us is the condemned. I wonder if they should do that maybe in the, you know, in the delivery room or in the nursery in the hospital. Welcome to the world of condemnation. But the reality is we all start off condemned. He who believes is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already. So it's not what he's saying there. They have already been condemned. And so, so we start off condemned. If you don't believe, then you're condemned. You've already been condemned. It's not your unbelief that brings the condemnation. No. You are, you, you've been condemned all along. But if you believe, you're not condemned because you've been forgiven. Again, thinking of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But he who does not believe is condemned already. What do I have to do to have eternal life? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. What do I have to do to go to hell? Nothing. You're already on the road. The only option is to jump ship by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Because he is, and why? Because you've not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Everyone is condemned to start with. Our only hope is faith. So as John looks back to that meeting with Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. What is that? What are you talking about? Let me explain. Remember the, the serpent in the wilderness. And so the Son of Man, the Messiah, must be lifted up, drawing all men to himself. For God so loved the world that he loved the, the, the world in this way, Jew and Gentile alike, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So we see here God's tremendous love. We see God's tremendous provision. We see the clear invitation to every single one believe on the Lord Jesus Christ the only option is eternal condemnation if you, if you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ I hope you understand I am not giving you my ideas you'll notice I'm just reading the Bible and if you have been following along, you see that's exactly what it's saying. 
And so if you aren't buying what I'm saying, your argument is not with me, but it's with God who gave us this Bible. And the same God who gave us his son. And that's the point. <clears throat> if you're saying, wait a minute, I, I don't like that option. Well, God is saying to you, look, I gave my son for, to give you the opportunity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you choose not to believe in Jesus Christ, if you choose not to receive the gift of forgiveness, that's on you. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's on him. Your sin and your guilt. How do I know God loves me? The cross answered that question once and for all. Have I trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you believed and received? Have you believed into Jesus Christ? It's not saying I believe in the facts. I believe in the history. I am trusting myself into a person. I am giving myself into his hands and arms for his eternal care. Why should I do that? God loved me so much he'd give his son for me. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these passages. Lord, I pray that each one here indeed would, would know Christ as Savior. Help us, Father, to worship the God of love and grace who would love us so much that he would give his son to die. Father, we thank you for that mercy. We thank you for that grace. And I pray that each one here would know Christ as Savior. And we pray, Father, for loved ones who need him now. Open their eyes. Enable them to believe, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.